When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tonight on Piers Morgan Uncensored, Alex Jones is ordered to pay a billion dollars for his vile conspiracy theories about Sandy Hook. A chilling effect on genuine free speech, as some claim. Or, in my view, justice served on a hateful whack job. We'll debate that and talk disinformation with the former director of the CIA. Kwasi Kwarteng says he's going nowhere. My money is going somewhere, and that's out the door, probably followed by Liz Truss, making them both the shortest-serving Chancellor and PM in history. Is that the only way way to fix Britain's mess? Ken Clark, former Chancellor and Tory grandee, will be live in the studio. Plus, India wants Camilla to ditch a crown jewel, which it says Britain stole. Is diplomacy more important than ceremony? Live from London, this is Piers Morgan Uncensored. Good evening from London and welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored. I believe passionately in free speech. The clue is in the name of the show, Uncensored. I believe you have a right to be heard. Just as importantly, I believe you have a right to hear what other people think, especially if you disagree with them. Why? Because unpleasant or radical opinions, even offensive opinions, are what a free democracy is made of. You might furiously disagree with somebody, but only by hearing their other opinions are you forced to ask yourself why you disagree. How do you know they're wrong? How do you know you're right? Is it just because you've always been told that they're wrong and convinced yourself that you're right? And who told you they're wrong in the first place? Opinions belong in the daylight. Well, they can be challenged, debated and exposed for what they are. That is free speech. But there is a line... And to me, it's a pretty clear line. And nobody illustrates better where that line is than the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. People with long memories may remember an encounter I had with him once. Hitler took the guns. Stalin took the guns. Mao took the guns. Fidel Castro took the guns. Hugo Chavez took the guns. And I'm here to tell you, 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. Yeah, he was crazy back then, about 10 years ago, and he's got crazier ever since. But he's got malevolently crazy because Alex Jones has made hundreds of millions of dollars by deliberately peddling lies. Not opinions, just hateful, deliberate lies. Most disgustingly, he lied about the Sandy Hook school shooting massacre where 20 young children had their lives taken by deranged young man, all between six and seven gunned to their desk with a semi-automatic rifle. Alex Jones told his followers it was all a government hoax. He said the grieving families were actors. Because of his lies, grieving families were harassed, even threatened with death by his fans. Sandy Hook is a synthetic, completely fake, with actors, in my view, manufactured. I couldn't believe it at first. People just instinctively know that there's a lot of fraud going on. Uh, But it took me about a year with Sandy Hook to come to grips with the fact that the whole thing was fake. Well, it turns out that the, the one who was the fraud was him. Every honestly held opinion deserves to be heard. But what Alex Jones was doing was spewing deliberate, vile lies to make himself rich. And he was using the families of Sandy Hook, grieving 
the deaths of their murdered children to make himself rich. And he didn't care about the impact of his lies on their lives. He didn't care that their lives themselves became threatened by complete morons who believed the nonsense that he was spewing. Well, finally, it's caught up with him and family sued Alex Jones. And as a result, a billion dollars was awarded in damages yesterday, one of the highest defamation payouts in history. Well, I want to start uh, by talking to the retired professional wrestler and former governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura. Uh, but before I get to him, I'm going to talk to Nicole Hockley, who lost her six-year-old son, Dylan, in the Sandy Hook massacre. And she joins me now. Nicole, thank you so much for joining me. I thought of you uh, very hard yesterday and all the families, having covered this appalling atrocity that befell you all uh, when I was at CNN, uh, to see at least some justice being served to this vile man, Alex Jones, for perpetrating wicked lies which compounded your grief. I guess it was satisfying, although his response, of course, was uh, to be completely insensitive once again. What was your reaction when you heard that this huge payout of damages was being made against him? What was your, what was your response? My initial reaction was just to be absolutely overwhelmed when the very first amount of the of award against one of the plaintiffs was being mentioned and hearing that first number come out and realizing that this was really a very historic moment and the jury had not only listened to us and really heard us, they were sending a message. Um, you don't get that kind of award without really saying this is important and this is how we're going to stop this spread of disinformation and have people understand that there are consequences for your actions. So I was overwhelmed by a verdict that was significantly larger than I could have thought about in my wildest dreams, but it was a message and I, and I think it's being heard. For people who think this is about free speech and he should be allowed to say what he likes and this is a ridiculously over-the-top payout, I want you to paint a picture of what it's been like for you families from Sandy Hook to be on the receiving end of this continual tirade of lies and the damage it's done to the way that you can conduct your lives yourselves? You know, that's a good question. And because we kept so much of this private from the public, I've had a lot of people reaching out over the last few weeks saying, I just didn't know. I had no idea that it was that bad. I mean, when you think about for 10 years, and this isn't just something, I mean, he did his first broadcast saying that he thought this was a false flag when I was still in the firehouse and I didn't even know if my child was alive or dead yet. He started off within two and a half hours of the shooting and has kept putting out video after video for year after year after year and calling us all crisis actors, calling our children, you know, either that they were never, they were never killed or they were never alive in the first place that were traitors, that were, were treasonous, and that were government shills. It's been very difficult. It's been easy to turn off some of it, but some of these people have been incredibly dangerous. And when he says, when he, when he stokes this anger in his base, this fear, and then incites them to action by saying, you know, we need to investigate this, you need to look into this more, they come at us. So part of it's just social media comments which can be damaging, it's defaming, it's hurting your reputation. People, I don't know if I'm walking around, who thinks I'm real and who thinks I'm an actress? It's, it's 
damaging to my son's memory in terms of his life, his short six-year-old life. It's damaging to my surviving son because I don't know what he's going to deal with going forward, but it's also scared the living daylights out of me. I sleep with weapons by my bedside. I've received death threats. I've received harassing calls and mail. I've had people send me pictures of dead children because they say, as a crisis actor, you have no idea what a dead child looks like. So let me send you this picture so you can see it. This is stuff that has really not only just been distressing, it's disturbing. And in terms of security, you know, I'm just a mom. I'm just trying to look after my surviving son, run my organization and make some good in the world. I didn't choose to be part of this. Alex Jones chose to tell lies knowing that they were lies and continuing to harbor that lie and make it happen for his own profit. And that's what this trial has been about. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's utterly disgusting. It's sickening. Even as I hear you tell the story of what you've had to endure, the idea that you lose your son and all these other families lost their loved ones, these young kids who were at school supposedly safe, that you go through that and then your misery and grief is, is multiplied and compounded by this monster deliberately lying just to make money, I I find, and then imperiling your lives. I mean, it's just, it's so completely sickening. Um, Nicole, you were awarded, you and uh, and your husband Ian, $155 million in damages. He's made it clear he doesn't have the money, he's not going to pay it. What is your message to Alex Jones? This has never been about the money. This is about accountability. This is about showing that there's consequences. And I would hope that Alex Jones learns, A, you lost, okay? That's the most important thing here. You lost, truth is prevailing here, and you need to stop willingly spreading false information just so you can peddle beet juice and iodine tablets. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And to all of his followers, you need to know to stop doing this as well. Don't just believe what you hear on the Alex Jones show because it's not news, It's not journalism. It's not fact-checked. It's just his wild hypotheses so that you'll send him money. Um, That's what needs to stop right now. Nicole, I'm incredibly happy that you had at least a moment yesterday, you and the other families, where you held this person to account. And he will be held to account for this money, and it will probably bankrupt him. And that is a good thing. It will stop him spreading his vile lies. And I thank you very much for joining me. Like I say, I remember it very painfully covering Sandy Hook at the time and speaking to you and some of the other families. It it was one of the most unbearable stories I've ever had to cover and I can't even imagine what you all went through. And the fact this guy made it worse, I I find repulsive. So I'm pleased that he's been held to account and I thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, let's pick up this debate now with retired professional wrestler and former governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura. Jesse, great to talk to you. Hey, good to talk to you, Piers. It's been a while. It's been a long time, and it's great to have you. I mean, when you hear that (laughs) interview with Nicole Hockley, who lost her young son, um, it's utterly heartbreaking, but it's also, I find it enraging. Enraging that someone like Alex Jones, who I knew briefly, you've, I know, known in the past as well, that someone could deliberately peddle such wicked lies purely to make money and knowing that they were lies. I don't think he believed for a moment any of what he was saying was true. Well, Pierce, you know, he got what he deserved, I think. Now the question is, can, you know, he truly get what he deserves? Because, uh, you know, he made light of the whole 
uh, system, the whole judicial system that convicted him of this, and he's laughing that they'll never get their money or anything like that. Now I guess it gets to the second phase. Uh, can he be truly held accountable, or will bankruptcy get him off the hook? You've always been a, a big proponent of free speech, as, as indeed I have. A lot of debate raging sure. now about where the line gets drawn, who draws it, you know, what, what this line is. It's hard, it's not easy. Um, what, when you see a case like this, is this clear-cut to you? Well, uh, you know, there's a difference between questioning, like I question the murder of John F. Kennedy. And I think I have reason to do so, considering the government is still holding on to documents for over 60 years claiming national security. Well, if, it's, if the story's true in what they told us, then they shouldn't have to hold on to anything. It should all be released. So, but there's a difference, because we all know John F. Kennedy died. We all know the children at Sandy Hook died. The difference in my questioning of conspiracies is that I don't deny they didn't happen which is what Alex Jones tried to do here. He tried to say Sandy Hook was an action film or something, or propaganda, whatever he did, which is totally ridiculous, because it did occur. And so when I question and go into conspiracies myself, I go into ones that obviously they've occurred, but sometimes not all the information is being released to us, the public. I mean, and when I, think I, we're entitled I interviewed to know you... That. I interviewed well you at CNN, free speech. I interviewed you at CNN uh, several times, actually. Um, and on one occasion, you talked about 9-11, and you said, my theory of 9-11 is that yep. we certainly at best knew it was going to happen. They allowed it to happen to further their agenda in the Middle East and go these wars. This is about the US government. I mean, when you, when you say that, would you be mindful now about the potential impact on families of loved ones who died on 9-11? No, because the families of 9-11 are asking the same questions I am. They want to know, because release documents now indicate there was quite possibly a great deal of Saudi Arabia playing a role in this. And the, the 9 I'm with the 9-11 families. Let's know the absolute truth. And that's all the 9-11 families are asking for. It's all I'm asking for. There's a, still a lot of unanswered questions, Piers. And you got to remember something. I spent four years in the Navy underwater demolition team. I know how to blow things up. And I know how different explosives work. And I question 9-11 absolutely. I question it still today. Well, but you don't, yeah, I know but look, it occurred. If I'm challenging you, though, Jesse, I was like, you don't seriously believe the US government knew this was going to happen or played any part in it, right? I don't know. But I just know that they have, that 9-11 and Kennedy, they have not been forthcoming. And I'll give you the example. You had the 9-11 committee, right? The 9-11 report. They didn't even mention Building 7. Half the people in America don't even know that a third building went down that day, that it went down at 5.20 that afternoon and was never struck by an aircraft. Yeah, they Jesse, never gave I'm an sorry. explanation Jesse, to that, that building. That is just completely untrue. What? It's untrue.
That's why people don't know you're, about it. You're saying buildings. You're you're saying building seven didn't fall to the ground. Well, you're suggesting that, that this was somewhat who the U.S. government blew up building seven. Is that what your claim is? No, I'm saying that Bill, no explanation was given as to what happened to building seven. In fact, the BBC, the BBC had a reporter who was doing a live broadcast back talking about building seven had collapsed to the ground. And the entire time she's doing it, Building 7 still behind her standing. Because it didn't fall till 5.20, and on the tape this says 4.50. 30 minutes before the building fell to the ground, she was already reporting back to you in Britain that it had Why? fallen. Okay. Doesn't that raise a Why? question to you? Why would somebody cover that up? Who gains? I don't know. I, you know, you're asking me to take a role and answer questions that need to be investigated. I have not investigated. These are just things that I see and have heard that have never been answered. And building half the people in America don't even know that a third building went down that day. Well, we have the perfect person to talk to about this because I'm now going to be joined. Thank you, Jesse Ventura, for joining me. We're now being joined by sure. the former director of the CIA, former White House chief of staff under President Clinton, Leon Panetta. Leon, I think you were holding your head in your hands through some of that. Um, you know, just to clear this up for, for any viewers who are wondering what on earth that was all about, what is, what is the truth about what Jesse Ventura just said? Well, <laughs> having, uh, having gone after uh, bin Laden and uh, those that were involved uh, in uh, the attack uh, on this country, uh, I think it's... Uh, it's pretty clear to me uh, that uh, Al-Qaeda and bin Laden uh, were the primary planners uh, of 9-11 and conducted uh, the attack uh, on 9-11. Uh, and, you know, with regards to uh, buildings that may or may not have come down, there's no question that uh, the impact of what happened with the trade towers uh, created uh, the kind of dynamic that brought down other buildings as well. This, this is, uh, th there's no mystery here. It's the result of the attack uh, on the Twin Towers that resulted in bringing those buildings down. But, but the, the, the idea which Jesse Ventura was sort of suggesting there, that somehow the American government knew that this might happen or had some involvement with the Saudis with it, what is your response to that? Well, you know, again, uh, there's no question it was a national commission that looked at 9-11. Uh, and uh, what it clearly found uh, is that, uh, that bin Laden and al-Qaeda were primarily responsible uh, for planning the attack and conducting the attack. Now, uh, was there a failure of intelligence uh, sources to be able to get uh, all of the information uh, that was out there. Uh, the, the National Commission basically said uh, because there was a failure to share uh, intelligence and information, uh, we, may, we may have uh, missed the fact that they were in fact planning this attack. Uh, and that is the responsibility, obviously, of uh, the intelligence agencies that uh, failed to share that kind of information. But uh, the idea that somehow uh, our federal government was uh, directly involved in this attack is crazy. Yeah. 
Let me turn uh, just to the wider issue. Um, following this extraordinary uh, win for the Sandy Hook families against this conspiracy theorist, Alex Jones, of nearly a billion dollars of damages. Uh, historic figure, obviously. But it does bring into question, doesn't it, this whole fake news disinformation era we now live in and the brutal, cynical monetizing of fake news by people like Alex Jones, uh, deliberately putting out very damaging disinformation to line their own pockets to make money. What do we do about this? Well, it, 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 it is a tremendous cause for concern when it comes to uh, the stability of our world and, and our countries. Uh, democracies, uh, particularly our democracy, uh, is uh, in many ways being undermined by those uh, that claim uh, the lies that, uh, that just go to the very core of uh, what our country is all about. The fact that, uh, uh, that Donald Trump has basically uh, claimed the big lie and that uh, somehow the election uh, was stolen. Uh, even as we speak, uh, the January 6th committee is reporting that Trump knew very well that he had lost the election uh, and that uh, nevertheless, he promoted this lie, and ultimately, uh, it led to the attack on our capital. Uh, the reality is that uh, these kinds of conspiratorial lies uh, are being used. Uh, and what concerns me is that, in fact, there are people that basically believe those lies uh, mm. without asking questions about what is the real truth here. Mm. Look, it, it really does depend on the institutions of our democracy to respond to this kind of craziness. And... What the court did uh, in the Jones case is essentially hold him accountable for spreading what was clearly a lie, a blatant yeah. lie that caused harm. And so I'm, I'm a little bit comforted by the fact that the institutions of our democracy are responding mm. uh, and trying to hold people accountable for trying to present these kinds of blatant lies that harm people. Look, I believe in free speech. We all mm. believe in free speech. Mm. There's a case that Oliver Wendell Holmes decided in this country that basically said, yes, you can have free speech, but you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Right. And so clearly you can't use free speech to cause harm. Yeah. Uh, that's where the line is drawn. Yeah. And that's where the court drew the line. Finally, Mr. Panetta, um, I want to turn to Ukraine, Putin, where we are with this. We've spoken before at the early stages of this, of this war. Where do you think we are here? How, what's the end game, do you think? Well, I, I really do believe that the tide of war has changed here. Uh, you know, we've gone through a number of phases in this war. Uh, the fact was uh, we, we've had a failed invasion uh, by Russia initially uh, that was stopped by Ukraine. Uh, and obviously the United States and NATO working together uh, to stop Putin. We've been through a siege warfare. Actually, we're still seeing some of that uh, in what Putin is doing in, in blatantly destroying uh, that country and killing innocent men, women, and children to break the will of the Ukrainian people, and that hasn't happened. Uh, we've been through a, a war of attrition, uh, but the Ukrainians have now advanced uh, with a well-planned uh, offensive, uh, have been pushing the Russians out of, uh, uh, out of the east, uh, really capturing, again, almost a 1,000 square miles uh, in that area. So 
the Ukrainians are winning this war, uh, and Putin is losing. Uh, and as a result, uh, Putin feels cornered. He's fighting a two-front war. He's fighting a war against Moscow and the hardliners who are criticizing him for losing this war. And he's fighting a war in Ukraine. So Putin is cornered, and that makes him dangerous because when you, when you corner a bully, uh, a bully can be very dangerous. And I think that's the situation we're facing right now. Leon Panetta, great to talk to you, as always. Thank you very much indeed. Good to be with you. Well, coming next, the PM in this country is having another week from hell. Every week so far has been a week from hell for Liz Truss. How much more can she, or more to the point, the country take? Plus, mansplaining, manspreading, toxic masculinity. Men, is it all over for us as a species? Former GQ editor Dylan Jones, who created Man of the Year awards. In fact, I won three of them, and every time I did, I lost the job I won them for. So I hold him accountable for that as well, but he'll join me live as well. Well, welcome back. They've lost the markets, the public, and a rapidly rising number of their own MPs. Now it seems like, well, even the king may have had enough of Liz Trust in Kwasi Kwarteng. This is what happened when the king met the new PM yesterday. Promising, Your Majesty. Your Majesty. Lovely to see you again. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Oh, dear. <laughs> Not the most encouraging, heartwarming exchange we've seen between a, a monarch and the Prime Minister. Uh, but joining me now is somebody I'm delighted to have on the show, the former Chancellor, Tory grandee, Ken, now Lord Clark of Nottingham. Welcome to you, Ken Clark. Good to be here, uh, Great to see you with a nice glass of red wine as well. It's a civilised hour I gather it's I've set a precedent for the programme. You have. You're the yep. first one to be actively You drinking. provided it. I didn't, <laughs> bring, I didn't bring my own. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see you, and I really appreciate you coming over. Um, without getting too personal about the individuals, what have you made of the last three weeks, in, just from a position of former Chancellor? Well, well I don't think I surprised people by saying... I, uh, unfortunately, I've never known a new government get off to a more chaotic start. I yeah. mean, it's made a disastrous beginning, and they've really got to start again. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's just... Uh, and, uh, but I say, I, you say I don't want to get into the individuals, that's quite right. I'm, I'm still a Conservative, but slightly you know, detached one mm -hmm. sometimes, as compared with the past. Um, I want them both to succeed. I mean, in the national interest, we don't want chaotic government. We actually want them to tackle the several really serious crises that they've inherited. But, but the problem they have, it seems to me, is once you lose the confidence, particularly of the markets in this kind of situation, mm. then things can unravel very quickly. And they are playing, it seems to me, a, a form of roulette with the nation's economy. Well, they plunge into a budget too quickly. Uh, they didn't think it through. They acted solely on the basis of what Liz had said during her election campaign. Uh, I doubt whether they paused much to take very much advice. I mean, Rishi uh, Sunak, her opponent in that race, specifically he warned, said... Yeah. He said this yeah. is what would happen if they did it. Well, I voted for Rishi. Right. <laughs> well, I, I thought he would have been a much better candidate. I, I don't claim to be an expert on market sentiment, which can be extraordinarily mm. odd and unpredictable. 
But it, I think this was, you know, a real danger. And when I listened to the, the budget, I thought they, this was extraordinary. Uh, all they were doing was s spending huge amounts of money, which they proposed to print and borrow. Right, without any uh, any indication to us about how they were going to afford any of this. Well, precisely, because they'd inherited a serious debt situation already. Our credit was already, you know, strained. Mm. Uh, and, in fact, when they issue bonds now, foreign creditors often won't buy it, and mm. the bank prints the money and takes the bonds. Uh, and you, you can't do, you do that. They've, they've inherited a dreadful combination, which we haven't had for many, many years, of a highly inflationary situation, mm. almost, you know, hyperinflation, with a recession mm. going down. So the bank is working to take money out of the economy and get interest rates down. They turned up with an enormous pile of debt already that mm. they had to contemplate what to do about they promptly added hundreds of millions of pounds to it. I mean, to me, I'm, look, I'm not an economist like you. I've not been Chancellor. But to I'm me, it seemed, it seemed nuts at the time. I said it on the day they did it. Well, I it was startled as I listened to it. I was watching it on television. I'm not in the Commons anymore. Uh, and, yeah, it surprised me, to put it mildly. Yeah. People have tried to compare Liz Truss as, as, like, the new Margaret Thatcher, but the interesting thing about Thatcher... Oh, Margaret. ..was that when she came in, she didn't actually... She did the opposite to this. Geoffrey Howe's 1981 budget was very unpopular cos it was so tough. We had to do that. Put up taxes. Yeah, well, we had to get the fiscal situation sorted out mm. before we started on our uh, structural reforms. That's, uh, you know, that's... I'm used talking jargon, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was a very tough and quite unpopular budget that Geoffrey had to introduce. And if and something like today's proposition had been put to Margaret, mm. she, she would have lectured Quasar, I think, on good housekeeping. Uh, she, she didn't ignore fiscal discipline. She didn't, uh, she didn't just say, well, I promised it when I was on the stump, so I'm going to do it is anyway. He, is he, for want of a better phrase, toast? Quasi quarto. Well, is there any uh, way back for it? At the moment, we don't know what they're going to do. All we have is wild rumours. But there are apparently rumours tonight swirling. They're going to reverse the the corporation tax. Yeah, they, that's which is another big plank of their mini budget. And I gather that's the current one. If, if they have to do that, surely at that stage, well, the I, game I, for a, a new chancellor who's done all these it, things and then reverses. I, I've made U-turns in my very long political career. Anything I, quite like this? Nothing quite like this, and not I don't think when I was chancellor. But you, you know, would you? If you were him, the floor of the house, if you were him, and you had to get up and say, "I'm sorry, I'm making," you know, I, I, I did this once in the Commons, yeah. making a U-turn on something. Uh, I'm making a U-turn. We got it wrong, and we're going away to think again. Uh, and it, it calmed things down. I, I think their fate now, and the fate of the rest of us, depends on what they now do. They mm. can't come back, talk to each other, and say, now, after the last 24 hours, they're going to do nothing. Right. Uh, they, they were right all along, and they're carrying on. Mm. And if you're going to do a U-turn... Do it properly. You can't mm. do... You don't want already. Should they just start little, again? I mean, it's the only again. way out start, to say... Start, start again. You, you can't do little... Scrap bit. the whole mini-budget. Otherwise, they'll be doing little bits of U-turns every few days. So you would literally should. scrap the entire thing and start again? Well, I... Yeah, I just pretend you, you hadn't said... I, the, 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 the I'd just say the tax uh, cuts are mm. off and they're the tax cuts we wish to make when circumstances allow us to do so. Uh, what the fuel uh, price thing, you have to give some people help with fuel prices, mm. but it's the poor and the less well-paid mm. who need the, the help. Uh, they should have done some scheme where by you did actually cut fuel prices and hold them. Uh, they haven't cut them, but they've frozen them. 
for people who consume below a certain amount right. of energy and left the rest of us to grumble about fuel taxes and blame Vladimir Putin. Would you, would you raise the benefits in line with inflation? Yes, I think in the present... Is that we, a no-brainer? Really? We have too much poverty in the country and we are going to have a very hard winter. And we, the, the one thing even the most highly paid person in the country probably doesn't want mm. is to see more of our population drifting into destitution and abject poverty. So, yes, that, that was an absurd thing to float. If you were a betting... Yeah, they, they are you a betting say, man, Ken? Uh, I used to be. No, I was about the only... Well, with one, your old one betting... of the very few bad habits I've given <laughs> up, really. <laughs> with your old betting hat on, would you put good money on Kwarteng surviving the month and Liz Truss surviving till Christmas? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't bet on it, but as I said, I, I want them to yeah. sort it out. Uh, but it entirely depends on whether they learn the lesson, start again say they're making changes to or get some stability in the markets, so just calm it down if for a you day were Liz Truss, would and you... And if, you, if you're going to do a U-turn, do a proper U-turn. If you were Liz Truss, would you, would you sack Quasi Guateng now? No. Really? Well... I would... Again, the, the politics... They got the, the politics of the budget were all wrong. The mm. cutting the top rate of tax wasn't really the mm. financial problem, but that was a bizarre thing to do mm. when the rest of the country was facing hardship. Uh, but the, the, if, if sack Quasi, people would immediately say he's being made a scapegoat, mm. absolutely being made a scapegoat. Uh, and I don't think it would rebound to her credit very rapidly. Uh, I also... It's better, better to actually sack the mini-budget and start again. Start the mini-budget again. Uh, and we'll see if changes of personnel can be kept to the minimum. I have no objection personally to either of these people. Mm. Uh, start again. And as I said when I started, uh, learn the lesson. Just don't plunge into things like this anymore. Uh, do study a bit more and take some advice on this simplistic rhetoric that uh, cutting mm. tax for wealthy people boosts growth and pays for itself. It's all complete nonsense, isn't it? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Ken? It's great to have my own views validated by a man of your expertise. But I thought you invited people on to do that. Of course. <laughs> How is our wine, by the way? It's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> uh, Ken Clark, great to see you. Thank you very much for coming yeah, pleasure. in. Pleasure. Really nice appreciate it. Well, coming up next, Cool Britannia, Park Life. Things are going to get better. That was a glorious 90s. God, how I miss them. How wrong they were. Former GQ editor Dylan Jones has a great book out about the 90s. He's on next. Plus, should Camilla wear the controversial colonial diamond? We'll debate that as well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. It's very difficult to understand how demoralized people are. And certainly many young men are in that category. And you get these casual insults, these these incels. What does it mean? It's like, well, these men, they're, they don't know how to make themselves attractive to women who are very picky and good for them. Women, like, be picky. That's, that's your gift, man. Well, welcome back. That interview with Dr. Jordan Peterson has now racked up 7 million views, the whole interview on YouTube. Uh, you can see the whole thing here again tomorrow night. He reached some serious points about everything masculine being branded toxic these days. A far cry from those days of unparalleled hedonism in the 90s, a time when many people thought they too deserved to live the rock and roll lifestyle. I know I tried. Blur, Oasis, The Spice Girls, Tony Blair, Kate Moss, Padilla and Skinner. What a time it was to be a man and to be alive. But was that the last great time to be a man and be alive? Well, who better to ask? The former GQ editor Dylan Jones, who joins me alongside my pack tonight, lawyer Paula Roan Adrian and Talk TV social editor Isabel Oakshaw. Well, first of all, Dylan, great to see you. Great to see uh, you. Was the one, the, in my opinion, the greatest magazine editor of them all. Very kind. That this country's seen. You were also the man who gave me three of your Men of the Year awards. Uh, one for my work at the Daily Mirror, mm-hmm. opposing the Iraq war. One for my work at CNN, taking on the NRA over guns. And one at Good Morning Britain, haranguing politicians over uh, the pandemic. And the uniquely um, bizarre <laughs> thing about it was, within three months of every one of those three awards, I lost the job that I got it for. <laughs> so thank you, Dylan Jones, for being the number one curse of my entire career. Uh, but great to see you. Men. When I think back to the 90s, the giddy days before social media, the internet, even email, technology, life was so much simpler. You could go out and behave like a toxic man and nobody cared. Now what's happened? Can I first say that the only reason I actually left my job was to spare your blushes so you didn't get <laughs> fired again, OK? <laughs> um, I think that's... Um, it's, it's true to a certain extent. I mean, I think I spent my last book trying to redeem the 80s mm. and I'm trying to redeem the 90s this time because I think it gets a bad rep. Mm. Uh, because it was an incredibly culturally rich time. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was... I, I don't think it was just great for uh, men. I think it was a culturally emancipating period for men and women. Are men basically now being traduced into being pathetic? No, and I think, as anything, it's about balance. And I think there's been a period in the last five years or so where masculinity has been toxic toxic and there has been a kind of uh, it's been redressed and in in part for good reason but I think you can see the pendulum beginning to swing all right Paul at my view is men are being introduced we're being parked into a box where everything masculine that people used to look up to and respect and like about men is now being used as a stick to beat us it's everything is toxic if you behave like a man I'm confused about this. I'm confused. Because let me just remind everybody, in case we've forgotten this, you still dominate in practically every single field across this planet, bar home care or child-rearing. So let's not create a myth here. At which age group, though? Because you probably find that that is only the case amongst older men, because things are changing massively, aren't they? If you you actually look at the gap... We saw what happened during Covid. 
we went, we reverted back to old stereotypes, didn't we? Where Did even we? though the women were working at home with the men, who did the majority of the childcare? Women did. And when you talk about when you talk about men and uh, and emasculating men, mm. we're not emasculating men by teaching them to be vulnerable. We're not emasculating men yeah, by getting them about to understand not, who about they if are. Men aren't blubbing every two minutes. There's something emotionally wrong with them. That somehow the stiff upper lip is now a terrible thing. You're not allowed to actually have a stiff upper lip because it's shameful to not emote all the time. I do find that all a little bit like, come on, really? Have I got to start blubbing every 10 minutes just to prove that I'm a real man? We know that toxicity... <laughs> we, can, you, we, can, you, can you not actually touch me in the workplace? He was, Sorry. He was a bit I'll have you arrested by HR. Now, now, dear. Now, now, calm down. Can you not down. call me dear? Calm you down. see how this works? Dear, dear, we dear. know that, on a serious note, we know what the stats tell us about, for example, the suicide rate in men. Yeah, yeah and that we is know, serious. We know that. That's and Bear Grylls wrote a really good piece today, actually, didn't. A really good piece of Times based on his new book about the, the shocking epidemic of anxiety amongst young men. And I've seen this with my own sons uh, from time to time, and a lot of their friends suffering real anxiety. And his theory, and I agree with it, is they're exposed to so much stuff now, sensory overload, whether it's constant social media, shocking imagery from wars and all the rest of it, which we, did, we were spared it when we were young. There was no way of seeing most of this stuff. Pornography, all these things. It's constant, bombarding, bombarding, and I think it's really getting to them. But conversely, I think we are in a period now where, because men have been encouraged to be more open about their feelings and to be more honest about being vulnerable, that they, that they can be more open and they can talk to people. So I think it works in another way too. So I think that in many ways, men have benefited. I mean, I've had great yeah, conversations who, who... with you at GQ Christmas parties. But only after about 16 bottles of wine. That's the point I'm <laughs> Which exactly would remain my go-to for emotional outpouring. That's the point I'm exactly going to make. Who are these men who are being told they can talk? Who are these men who are being told they're vulnerable? They aren't allowed to do that. You're not going to find a man on the street doing that. What you're going to do is you're going to go on the internet and you're going to find a group, you're going to find an, an, an activist male group, and that's where you're going to spout, and that's where you're going to feel heard, and that's toxic peers. Well, let's talk about faster than... I'm not, I'm, look, you, you make some points. I don't agree with most of them, but you make um, good of you to make them. Fast, yeah, very good of you to, to make yeah. them. Well I'll, done, I'll just pat well you on done. the head if yeah. I could reach. <laughs> fast on the Cannonball, 1995 and all that. 1995 was actually the year I took over the Daily Mirror. And I remember that I wrote a book of diaries about that decade. It was a spectacularly entertaining decade and dramatic with all the news and the, the people and Princess Diana and Blair and all this kind of thing, wasn't it? It was uniquely... Well, I, Special I, decade. I think one of the most important things was that it was the last analogue decade. Mm. Uh, and in this country, I think people felt that they had a kind of sense of emancipation mm. and they could behave badly without having a smartphone shoved in their face. Mm. Uh, and there was it. It felt like a kind of level playing field. Uh, and it was an incredibly intoxicating period. But the mm. fact that it was the last analogue decade... Mm. Uh, and there was this sort of rush towards the end of the century, I think played into the cultural diversity. And My only problem a... with it is, if I turn to the index, there's, like a, there's a lot of mentions of me in the index. Far too many. But on the back, you've clearly drawn up your, your main stars <laughs> of the 90s. I'm not being funny, but there's no, there's no Morgan here, but there is Alistair Campbell, Gary Lineker, Matthew Freud. I mean, where am I? 
Here. Uh, you've obviously got the proof copy, Piers. You, <laughs> you are actually on the final one, I'm sure you are. I'm sure it's you it's are. a fantastic book. Uh, it's a, it's a, I love the stuff you do on these decades. And this was one of my all-time favourites, not least because I actually courted my wife at one of your parties in the 90s at GQ, so thank you. Pleasure. It's about the only thing you did for me, which enhanced my life. <laughs> uh, it's a great book, Dylan. Great thank to you. see you. Fast and a Cannibal. 1995 and all that. Uh, thank you very much. You're going. Yeah. You're staying. We're going to pitch you against your own partner. Oh, that happens all the time yeah. in our house. We might just talk about <laughs> intimate stuff just to get everyone going. <laughs> no, we uh, well, next tonight, India wants Camilla to ditch a crown jewel it says Britain stole. Is diplomacy more important than ceremony? We'll be discussing that with Isabel and her other half, Richard Tice, and they disagree. Well, we could be watching the first domestic dispute unfurl on national television. That doesn't keep you. Nothing will. Start spreading the news. Piers is taking the show to New York City with big guests in the Big Apple. Heavyweight champion Mike Tyson. The most controversial man in American news, Tucker Carlson. And the man who tried to kill the president, John Hinckley Jr. And many more. Join Piers Morgan Uncensored in New York City. It'll be a big week in New York next week, having the show from there. But there's breaking news tonight from America. Former President Donald Trump will be ordered to give evidence under oath over US Capitol riots on January the 6th. So that will be a fascinating development. It has been subpoenaed to give testimony. Well, Talk TV's Richard Tice has joined my a pack of one, Isabel, a pack he knows well because you are a couple. Um, and you, you're at loggerheads. Over a, I've got to bring in a little it's crown here. Yeah? It's very rare. rare. Thing. You're at loggerheads over a crown. I can't imagine <laughs> as much you ever agree about you two, but um, this is quite interesting. It's about the Koh-i-Noor, which is going to be part of the the. Well, it's, it's one of the great crown jewels, I guess, isn't it? Part of the, the coronation. And the debate really is whether we should be giving this back. Which I think is a ridiculous. What's your view? Well, I think it's a ridiculous suggestion. If you actually look into what this is made up of, this mm. crown, absolutely. Thousands. This is not the real one, by the way. Sadly, this, sadly. This goes to the winner of the debate. Thousands of jewels on it, all, almost all of which have probably got some kind of questionable heritage. I mean, how many of the diamonds are mm. blood diamonds? How many of the jewels can be traced back? I mean, there's a jewel in there. The, it's called the Black Prince Ruby, uh, which is traced back to some battle in Granada. I mean, are we going to now give that one back because it's got blood all over it and Richard, bad this history? Is, but this is actually all and about pick diplomacy. Them all out. Does, essentially, does the Queen Consort wear this crown at the coronation? The be Camilla. Exactly. And the point is that the whole purpose of the royal family is to be diplomatic, to, to sell the UK across the world. You don't want to create a great row with a fantastic growing nation like India. And the truth is about this particular diamond, the Koh-i-Noor diamond, it was obtained by the East India Company under very questionable it circumstances. It was a gift. It wasn't it was a, gift. a gift. Yes, it was. It was, it was reparations. It was a gift. It was reparations for war debt if you in give 1849. What would you do with it? You I, I think it out. I, I actually... No, I'm not going to pick it out, but I just, I just think it's, it's a bit unnecessary... So what would you do, though? You I, would just, I, just, I just don't think the Queen Consort should wear it at the event... 
Uh, you, you know, take so she it out. doesn't wear the crown, or she takes the diamond well, out. One suggestion I think is take it out, replace it with a oh, with a replica, and put it back. So it's, it's very sensitive. Oh, what happens if they say why create a diplomatic instrument? Well, because I think Isabel's right. Because actually, once you once you start taking some jewels out, you'll suddenly find there's a dodgy history about one of the greatest members of the Commonwealth. There's no need to unnecessarily create a row. So why is it okay to have a row with the other countries? And by the way, also Afghanistan is claiming politicians that. The role of the royal family is to smooth over when politicians make a huge uh, Richard, mess. When of it. did you go so woke? This is oh, really love weird. it. I've been accused Richard of woke. I've been accused of many th worse things <laughs> oh in my, my life. I mean, that is I mean Isabel, I mean, if he has genuinely gone woke, is that really the beginning that of the end that, of the that relationship? Is it. That I, is I, it. I can't. I'm not sure sorry. that you could be with a woke man. She's properly annoyed. She, do <laughs> she doesn't mean it. I mean, yeah. obviously, I'm right. She does mean it. Obviously, I'm right. Actually, do mean you can't have a fake crown at the coronation? Absolutely. You can't have a royal family upsetting a member, a main member of the. Yeah, what, happens if, what happens if they then literally say, right, we're going to go over every jewel exactly. that is one of the crown jewels. Yeah, you and have any, any dodgy history, they've all got to go. I'm, I'm not saying give it back. What I'm saying is don't unnecessarily wind people up by wearing it, by rubbing people's noses in it. I'm saying, look, just be sensitive. That's the role of the royal family, is to smooth so over diplomatic incidents. Instead? They replace it with something else. But you're else. going That's to find that every element of whatever the replacement is has also got some question mark about it. You know, gold from some dodgy mine, and on and on it goes. And I think the end, biggest question mark well tonight is, is the unthinkable. <laughs> has Richard Tice gone woke? Yeah. In fact, has he has he gone nuts? Honestly. <laughs> When Richard Tice goes woke, you know the world has literally taken leave of its senses. And I'm afraid I'm awarding this crown obviously. to your other half. And well, you're obviously, gonna have to, I'm not going to not going to You're going to place it on her head, on Isabel's head. Where you're going to get on with it. You've got about five seconds. Where there we go. Where it belongs. Actually, you look very good, is it? Oh, I think it's yeah. very heavy. You'd be a great queen consort. Thank go. you very much to both of you. That's it from me. Keep it uncensored. Good night. See you in New York next week.